Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I welcome back to the podcast Dr. Rachel Nederer to discuss toxoplasmosis and the eye. Rachel is a graduate from the University of Auckland Medical School. She is a senior medical ophthalmologist at Green Lane Hospital and she is the Ransco College representative for Auckland ophthalmology trainees. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland in the Department of Ophthalmology. Rachel's research interest is extensive and includes more than 85 publications in international journals and over 60 presentations at both New Zealand and international conferences. She's involved as an investigator for the Zoster Eye Disease Study and has particular interest in uveitis and epidemiology of eye disease. Rachel is committed to decreasing inequalities within the community in the provision of eye care. Kia ora, Rachel, and welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Louise. Thanks for having me. So today we're discussing toxoplasmosis and the manifestation of this disease in the eye. So let's just start with a refresher of this infection. So firstly, how is it transmitted and what are the special features of this organism that means it escapes the normal mechanisms of the human host? So toxoplasmosis is a protozoan infection. It's a parasite and it's commonly found in cat feces and in contaminated food. The definitive host is the cat, so that's where it can live and breed. But it can also affect most mammals, including humans, um, but the parasite can't breed there. And toxoplasmosis infection can occur from contact with cat feces, like changing cat litter, eating vegetables from the garden that haven't been properly washed. And it can occur from eating meat that has been contaminated with cysts. And these cause infection if the meat hasn't been properly cooked. It can also occur by transmission from the mother in utero and from contaminated water supplies. Once you've had that initial infection, toxoplasmosis is able to persist in the body and it does that in tissue cysts. Effectively, these are hidden from the immune system so they can persist for a long, long time. And then if they later reactivate in the eye, then they can cause inflammation. So how common is toxoplasmosis infection? It's really common. So it depends on the population studied and the habits. In New Zealand, it's around 30% of the adult population would be toxoplasmosis positive, whereas in France, there's a lot more raw meat eaten in France, then it's around 70%. So a patient presenting to us with toxoplasmosis, what would the signs be of an acute infection? So when people initially develop toxoplasmosis, they may be completely asymptomatic. Some of them will develop a flu-like illness, so they can get swollen lymph nodes, fever, fatigue, sometimes muscle aches. And so in those cases, sometimes you'll diagnose them by serology. So you might see that they are IgM positive in an acute infection. And sometimes they can be diagnosed by biopsy of a lymph node. Other times it completely flies under the radar and we don't see them until they actually get the eye involvement. So tell us about the eye involvement. What is a patient likely to present with? So when it involves the eye, they usually present with floaters. Um, they come in with blurring of vision, and sometimes it's red eye and photophobia. So examining the eye, Rachel, what are we looking for and what do we need to examine? With toxoplasmosis, we always talk about the headlight and the fog appearance. And so this is due to an area of yellow-white retinal inflammation, which is the headlight that you're seeing. 
And then it appears within inflammation in the jelly of the eye in the vitreous, which gives that fog appearance. So you get this kind of murky, murky view and this, you know, white, yellow shining through it. Of course, to see that, you're going to need to be good at bundle examination and it's tricky. But the easiest thing to see in clinical practice and with limited time is just that the red reflex is dulled for that patient. And that's kind of a sign that there's a little bit of that fogging going on um, and might raise an alarm bell, particularly in a younger patient who isn't going to have cataract causing that dulling, that there might be something else to investigate. So talking about investigations, you've mentioned serology. Is there any other investigations we should be doing if we're suspecting this? Going back to serology, the first thing to be aware of is because it's so frequent in the normal population, just having positive serology doesn't mean that toxoplasmosis is the cause of your eye disease. So serology will be positive in 30%. If you are IgM positive, then it means that you've had a recent infection. So that makes it much more likely that what's going on is associated with toxoplasmosis. When the eye involvement occurs, it's often a reactivation. And so then they'll be IgM negative, they'll be IgG positive. And so you need that kind of classic kind of clinical picture going with the positive serology to say that, yes, that's toxoplasmosis. If patients are serology positive for toxoplasmosis, looking at it in the other direction, then around 7% of them will get retinal scars due to toxoplasmosis. So 7% will have it within the eye. I guess the other things that we can do for these patients, you know, lymph node biopsy I talked about, and sometimes we can take samples from within the eye itself um, if we've got an atypical case and we really want to be sure. So we're wondering about toxoplasmosis with our patient in the eye. Who should we be referring to and how quickly do we need to refer? How urgent is that referral? Mm. So I think anyone who has floaters and blurred vision, especially if the eye is red, especially if there's that photophobia, I think we want to be seeing them. And we probably want to be seeing them within a day, really, because not necessarily so much for the toxoplasmosis, but there are other things that can cause that which are going to need to be treated very, very rapidly. And with toxoplasmosis, you've got a little bit more time with it, but you do want to be seeing them quite quickly. The other group of patients that we get referred to us are patients who've had an optometry exam and have found an incidental retinal scar. And those are quite important because we want to know whether that's toxoplasmosis, in part because it affects the risk of recurrence of that disease. And it also might affect the advice we give people about immune suppression. For example, if you needed to have a course of high-dose steroid you might think about covering for toxoplasmosis at the same time if it was known to be toxoplasmosis. The treatment of toxoplasmosis, tell us about this. So treatment for toxoplasmosis will treat the active disease, but unfortunately you're not able to completely eradicate the cysts. So there is always that risk of recurrence later down the track. Within ophthalmology, we often use monotherapy, so either cotrimoxazole or clindamycin as the treatment. But if the patient is immune suppressed or has severe disease, then triple therapy is really useful. So that would be a combination of pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and folinic acid. The inflammation you get in the eye is a really big part of the response. And so we'll usually start oral prednisone for the patient with a tapering course over a period of about six weeks, always accompanied by those antibiotics. Because if we just gave the prednisone on its own, we could make the disease a whole lot worse. And sometimes some topical steroid drops can be really useful as well to treat any inflammation that's at the front of the eye. You've mentioned recurrence. I wonder if I can ask, please, how often 
toxoplasmosis recurs, and then the outcomes of the treatment? So with recurrence, it does reoccur quite frequently. Probably all up, about 50% of patients will experience a recurrence at some point during their lifetime. And some patients will get multiple recurrences, unfortunately. We did a study in the New Zealand population looking at rates of recurrence, and we found that recurrence occurs in 15% of patients with ocular toxoplasmosis in the first year, and then a further 10% in the second year. So 25% in the first two years all up. And then after that, it gradually decreases, but you never really go back to zero, you know, and completely safe. There's always that small risk that it can come back. In terms of outcomes with patients, so it really depends on where in the eye the toxoplasmosis is affected. So if it has affected the central macula, your area for fine vision, then some patients will end up with permanent vision loss due to a scar at um, you know, the center for their fine sight. Other patients will just be left with a peripheral retinal scar that they don't really notice. But a lot of patients tell me that the floaters that they had that were in the initial herald that they had this infection in their eye often don't go away completely and they can kind of tell that one eye has more of them uh, than the others. The other thing to be aware of is that later down the track, these patients are at higher risk of retinal tears or detachments. So they probably occur in about 7% of patients with toxoplasmosis. And the things that we warn them about is watch for an increase in floaters or increase in bright flashes of light. And if they have those, we really want to be checking them within a day or two to see whether they've got a little tear in the retinal periphery. So with recurrence being so common, do we need to think about prophylaxis? Is there such a thing? Yeah, so cotrimoxazole can be used for really good prophylaxis for toxoplasmosis recurrence. And I'd usually use a 960 milligram dose three times a week. So usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday is what works for most patients. Our view of prophylactic treatments changing. So initially we were only using prophylaxis for patients who had multiple recurrences or for those who were immunosuppressed. But given the really high rate of recurrence, we're now also using it for patients with disease at the macula because if they have salvageable vision and they've had a lesion at the macula, the most likely place that the lesion is going to reoccur is again right beside that initial one. And you may have a patient that you've managed to bring back to fairly good vision who then has it wiped out by that subsequent recurrence. So for those patients, I discuss the pros and cons with them, but I'll always offer um, prophylaxis for one to two years following that um, macular lesion. I wonder if we can touch on some special groups that probably need special consideration. The first one was toxoplasmosis in pregnant women. How much yes. of a is this? So management of the infection in pregnancy really depends on whether the infection's a reactivation or whether it's a primary acquired infection. And if you're not sure, then checking the serology is really helpful because you can see if they're IgM positive, it's, it's a primary infection. A fundal examination can also help because if there's already a retinal scar present, it's likely to be a reactivation you know, rather than that primary infection. A new infection in pregnancy can be passed on to the fetus. And so depending on when in the pregnancy the infection is passed on, affects the risk to the baby and also the severity of the congenital disease. If you have infection early in pregnancy, then toxoplasmosis, as we know, can affect the developing brain. So there's that risk of micro or macrocephaly, um, of motor or developmental delays, intracranial calcifications and seizures. Toxoplasmosis can cause intrauterine growth retardation and premature birth. And toxoplasmosis, of course, can affect the eye for the baby as well. So 
a small number of children will be seen with toxoplasmosis lesions at birth. But if mum got toxoplasmosis during pregnancy and baby, you know, was toxopositive, then this can increase over the time we follow them to 72% of children having lesions by 16 years. The difficulty with this, you know, is that those babies can't always report those lesions. And I think um, we might talk about that a little bit later. But reactivations don't pose a problem to the developing baby. But we have to be careful what medication we choose, of course, because certain medications are potentially teratogenic. And so I'll often opt for local therapy for pregnant mums. And one of the options we have is to do an injection of clindamycin into the eye itself that saves mum from any systemic treatment at all. If mum is needle averse or if there are other reasons for wanting systemic treatment, then we always talk to infectious disease team and to the maternal health physicians just to make sure we're doing the best thing for mum. So Rachel, we've touched on infants. I wonder if we can now talk about those who have congenitally acquired toxoplasmosis. What are the considerations for these babies, please? So infants with congenitally acquired toxoplasmosis may have eye involvement, as we've mentioned. And this can either be seen at birth or, as I said, we can develop during follow-up. This is really difficult because young children can't report their visual symptoms and the disease can often go untreated. And unlike with adults where you're more likely to get peripheral involvement, children are much more likely to get involvement at the centre of their vision and it's more likely to cause permanent vision loss. There's some really interesting evidence from retrospective studies that prophylactic treatment of the baby in the first year of life may decrease that risk of developing later eye involvement. And so I think there's not a randomized control trial for that, but it's something we're certainly interested to look at more because if we can prevent these scars and this vision loss, that's such a big help to the child. The last group, Rachel, was the immunosuppressed individual. So immunosuppressed individuals tend to get more a severe spectrum of toxoplasmosis, and they may have atypical and aggressive disease. They can often also come in with bilateral involvement. Because the disease can be atypical, and because we always need to take that extra level of care in immune-suppressed patients, then I sometimes take a sample from the fluid within the eye to check um, PCR for toxoplasmosis, and also for other things that can cause retinal involvement in immune-suppressed patients, like viral causes. And that way I can be really absolutely sure that I've got the best treatment for the patient. When the toxoplasmosis activations occur in the eye in immune-suppressed patients, sometimes that can be associated with CNS toxoplasmosis. So if you have a patient who is HIV positive with toxoplasmosis, I would always do neuroimaging for them because around a third may have CNS toxo and also other severe immune suppression. Just think about neuroimaging and be alert for any CNS symptoms for them. And may I ask if we are considering starting somebody on long-term immunosuppression drugs, should we be screening before we start those? What's the um, thought there? So usually we don't, and usually we're fine. <laughs> um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know not good practice, but I think... Because a third of people are toxopositive, if they don't have any history of retinal lesions in their eyes, most of them are going to be fine because we don't see a lot of toxo appearing in immune suppressed. We do see some, but it's not exceptionally common. If they had a retinal scar in their eye, that might be a different story. And so 
if they've ever had a you know a eye exam where a retinal scar has been reported, I think going to see an ophthalmologist for a discussion about the pros and cons of immune suppression with cotrimoxazole prophylaxis is quite sensible. That's wonderful. Thank you for clarifying. Now, the last thing was about some new emerging data, which is suggesting that toxoplasmosis can have a detrimental effect on the brain, as you've mentioned. So it's been coined as toxo mind control. I wonder if you can tell us about this phenomenon. It sounds interesting. So I love this topic. Um, it's, uh, it's really fascinating in terms of how toxoplasmosis works. So toxoplasmosis cysts can be found in many areas of the body, and this includes the brain. And within mice, they've noticed that mice infected with toxoplasmosis will spend more time in open spaces. And they'll also show evidence of what they call fatal feline attraction, where they're attracted to areas that smell of cat or of cat urine. And this has led to the theory that there's an element of toxo mind control, where the parasite is essentially manipulating the host to increase the likelihood that the mouse is going to be eaten by the cat and then allow toxoplasmosis to complete its life cycle. The question is, what about higher mammals? So toxoplasmosis infection in chimps will make them more attracted to the smell of leopard urine, which is a natural predator for the chimpanzees. And leopards can also carry toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis infection in humans has been associated with a higher rate of risk-taking behavior. So more driving offenses, more gambling, uh, more self-harm. The Dunedin study found an increased rate of suicide attempts in individuals who were toxoplasmosis positive. And there's also been an association with schizophrenia observed. And so those who are toxopositive are around 50% more likely to develop schizophrenia. The good thing is it's not all bad news. And so there are areas in your life where a little bit of risk-taking behavior can be beneficial. And I read a Danish study recently, which looked at increased rate of toxoplasmosis serology positive in entrepreneurs and interestingly, particularly in successful entrepreneurs. So it's not just that they were risk-taking, they were taking good risks. And potentially the toxoplasmosis has affected that in some way. So fascinating. So to conclude our podcast today, Rachel, please, your take-home messages for our listeners. So toxoplasmosis is a really common infection, and it can cause long-term eye problems. Individuals, and particularly pregnant individuals, should take care when handling kitty litter and washing vegetables from the garden carefully. If you're pregnant, then I'd recommend that meat should be cooked through, um, even though I really love a rare steak myself. Um, but in pregnancy, it, it deserves that extra care. The eye signs of toxoplasmosis can include floaters and blurred vision and need referral to ophthalmology. We should consider prophylaxis for those high-risk groups and think about neurological involvement if immunosuppressed. And lastly, I guess the role of toxoplasmosis in some of our complex behaviours has only recently been understood, and so I'm looking forward to further developments in that space. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel. It's been lovely talking to you again. Thanks so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. If you're a New Zealand GP, you can claim CPD points for listening to this podcast. Please log them. On our website, goodfellowunit.org, you'll also find a list of resources used in this podcast. You can also access webinars, med cases, and learning modules. Thank you for listening.